Thanks very much to our, our first graduate of the, the new Austrian school. And I think that you wanted to say a few more things before we move on to any questions yes. or comments. Thank you. I, I said I was very calm, but that's a little white lie. Actually, it's pretty stressful. <laughs> you know. So I forgot to say uh, something about when I was talking about Sandeep that for me, close the loop. I started off with a commitment to help preserve and disseminate the professor's work. And now on his new website, feketeresearch.com, the, the mission statement of the website of the whole organization is to help preserve, disseminate, and carry forward the work of Professor Fekete. And this and carry forward is really awesome. When I heard this, I got like warm, fuzzy feelings. And it goes back to Mr. Newton, Sir Isaac, and when he said, if I see further than others, it's because I stand on the shoulder of giants. And for me personally, when I was really fairly heavily into the Austrian school, I started to have a little bit of this guru thing. Oh, this is the authority, and this is the tradition, and this must be true. You know, what the Buddha said was, don't believe anything to be true just because tradition tells you it's true. And then he said, don't believe anything to be true just because tradition tells you it's true. And then incredibly he said, don't believe anything to be true just because I tell you, the Buddha tells you. And all the disciples went like, wow, what do we believe? And he said, believe what you understand and what you figure out for yourself. So to all of you, I invite you, don't believe a word I say. Figure it out for yourselves. So thank you for that, Sandy. And what was the other thing I forgot? <laughs> you wanted to talk about something, some some things that we were oh, talking the, the about. Thing, yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, I'm not being pedantic here by any means, but maybe I am. <laughs> but we had a discussion two days ago about uh, future goods versus present goods, and is this apodictic or uh, whatever, and I don't want to touch that, no, 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 but I heard this, this phrase run by me that said, uh, ice today is not the same good as ice or, or ice in the summer is not the same good as ice in the winter, is not the same good. I said, what does that mean? To me, a good is like, a, like the British usage, a goods train or a goods wagon carries goods, which are stuff, you know, coal or sides of beef or whatever versus passengers. So if you're, if you're implying that ice is not the same physically, that, that frozen H2O, what are you talking about? Let's not forget Menger's axiom, the one axiom we need to build this whole edifice of economics, consciousness resides only in human consciousness, and all that implies. So I, 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 it can't be that. Value. You said consciousness. Consciousness resides in value, right? Is no, that what no, I said? Consciousness <laughs> resides in consciousness. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> value resides in consciousness, or value arises. In other words, the Austrian approach is value scale, in people's thinking, in their minds, and they make their choices, and the, the economics starts when people made a choice and, and take action on that choice. And of course, that's where human action comes from. 
So value arises only in human consciousness. That frozen H2O, that stuff out there is just stuff. And then maybe it means that it provides, it, it's good for people. Ice is good for you. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The ice is just ice. And if I happen to like to put it on my sore shoulder, it's good for me. But he may say, ice, yuck, I like a heat pad. It's in your mind. And so there's some fallacies that are hiding in here. So if you say that people value ice more highly in the summer than in the winter, well, okay, maybe, but then it is it an axiom? Or should you actually be saying more people, or most people, or I think people? Because I'm going to give you an example that where it's completely not true. The flip side is true. I come from Canada, a very cold country, as you surely know. And the, norther, the further north you go, the colder it gets. That's why they're all living near the American border. And it's a long winter. So they have, it's in Quebec City, which is the, the capital city of the province where I live, Quebec. Montreal is the biggest city, but uh, Quebec City is the, big, is the uh, capital. Far the north, cold. They have a thing called Winter Carnival to celebrate winter and break it up. And there's lots of boozing and ice skating. And they, they practice the ancient art of the uh, boaters, the, uh, tr trying to get across a semi-frozen river. So they wade and push the boat and paddle and race. Anyway, the, this, the highlight of this ice sculpture, there are ice carvers who take blocks of ice and turn them into really neat things like ice angels and Santa Claus and reindeer. <coughs> and there's, you know, there's judgment and prizes and blah, blah, blah. And in the old, today they may just use refrigerated ice, but in the old days they took the trouble to chop ice or saw ice blocks out of the river, lug it up the hill and do it. Well, I guarantee you an ice carver has values ice more in winter than in summer. Because in the summer, to him, to that person, that role, it has no value, it melts in no time at all. But you say that's frivolous. That's not real economics, it's not money. Well, I disagree because what drives people's choices does not have to be money. It can be any psychological thing and you like it for whatever reason and you do it. But even so, there used to be an industry called ice farming. And this is not just in Quebec now, this is whole Canada and northern US, any cold area where during winter, they would saw big blocks of ice out of the frozen lakes, store them in a warehouse, insulated for summer. There was an entrepreneur, he saw a spread, he saw potential for making money, and people got rich doing this. This, this useless stuff, this worthless stuff, this ice became a resource that people wanted. They liked it in their gin and tonic, for all I know. And that's, that's the thing, it was, you know, and those people who were farmers and had no jobs in the winter, they worked as ice farmers, and they weren't the entrepreneurs. And there was economic activity and money changing hands. So this, this useless stuff was promoted to a pretty valuable resource, ice. And, and the same piece of rock, rock is dirt, right? Well, what about the marble slab that Michelangelo chopped his thing out of? Suddenly it acquires value from human consciousness. Value from human consciousness. And one more thing, this industry disappeared uh, because mechanical you know, compressors and refrigeration and became cheaper and more convenient to just freeze the ice yourself and do it. Cost money, people are willing to pay for it. But I'm thinking, what if the thing collapses and electricity goes down and you need ice for your ice box and otherwise your food goes bad? Is it possible that this industry will be resurrected and ice will once again be promoted to being a resource? I hope not. 
but you never know. So that, that I wanted to throw that in for how important <clears throat> it is to keep this principle in mind. Value arises in the human consciousness because if we miss that, we'll end up where Marx was, where he believed that value arises out of labor and all the other mistakes. And, and his mistake cost how many hundred million lives the, the Marxist fallacy based on that one little fundamental error, where does value come from? So this is not just hairy theory, this is really, really serious. Really? Yes. yes. Based on this line of thinking, what you've just been talking about, I was wondering if you could answer the question, how do you think the Buddha would have placed future value and present suffering? <laughs> <laughs> this is a joke, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Where does suffering lead to? It depends. Well, maybe, you know, actually, that's an interesting question because maybe it takes suffering. You know, somebody was asking me before, when will it, what does it take to change it? Will it have to collapse before it can turn around? And I said, I don't know. People are pretty um, stubborn, and until their ass is on fire, they won't move. But once the flame's burning, they move. So it may take that. It may take a collapse. And, um, who knows how bad it gets. I mean, we're going on this bad road, worse and worse and worse, and unless we turn away from it, you said you smell the sulfur, well, yeah. <laughs> any, any others? Um, you were gonna say something, weren't you? Oh, oh I, yes, can, yes, I, can, yes. I can testify to um, Rudy's comment about soap bubbles. Um, for, my, for my thesis at college, for my uh, maths masters, I, uh, I, I chose the problem of minimal surface areas, but uh, for, um, and I think as we all know, if you have two, two rings like that, uh, the, the soap bubble that forms in between it is called a catenary, a catenary of revolution. And um, you can quite easily show that because this three-dimensional problem collapses into a one-dimensional problem because of the symmetry of the shape. And any schoolboy can solve that differential equation. It's not a very, a very hard differential equation to solve. But as soon as you uh, change uh, the shape from being symmetric to asymmetric, the problem remains exceptionally hard. And the equations that you have to solve are very difficult. They're very, they're, they're what is called, they're what, what is termed nonlinear partial differential equations. Very, very hard to have any general theory about nonlinear partial differential equations. And it's very hard to solve in general a particular nonlinear partial differential equation. But anyway, um, I managed to do it and in the process get a distinction doing it. Um, but my, my tutor turned around to me at the end and said, you know, it was a pretty obvious result after all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cheap! That's cheap! <laughs> but that just goes to show you need to do all of this work and effort to show something that nature does yes. naturally. Oh, you know. And who was your tutor? My tutor was Dr. Frank Berkshire. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I don't know him. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, okay, uh, is that it? That's so it. if it's so difficult, <laughs> if it's so difficult to solve two rings and a soap bubble, how the hell can you solve a bunch of human beings with trillion trillion neurons going at 
mile a second and what they're going to decide and not decide. It says, come on, give me a break. But they seem to think it's possible, don't they? But they're masters. They are masters. We will exploit, and it's not just the planet, but mm. nature, and we're part of nature, so we're being exploited. We are. Really, huh? I want to add something here. And I was going to save it for my talk tomorrow, but there's a lot of stuff I'm going to talk about. But what you said draws it to this conclusion. It's, it was a quote by von Mises. He wrote this in 1940. All right, and he gave it to his wife. He died in 64, I think, or 69. 71. Okay. He gave it to his wife, and he asked that it not be, this stuff be published, let go until after he died. And when I ran across it, it was extremely heartfelt, because I knew who he was and what he had done. And, 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 and to me, I consider he's much like Professor Fekete is here. In, in a sense, that you both pursue the truth. And against all odds, say what you think, and you think about it far more than the rest of us do that's over here. All right. But von Mises said, he said, I started out as a reformer. I became merely a chronicler of decline. All right? Very sad comment. Very sad comment. Because it showed that, and I didn't want, you know, and I was going to use, uh, so it doesn't matter, but what you said, you were talking about the sulfur in, in the time that we're here. And the thing is, is that he, he was absolutely correct in his life, all right? But we're all born at different points. And what is possible at one point, or impossible at one point, isn't necessarily impossible at another. And you don't know when that point is until it happens. And the professor has spent his life, I mean, you look at it. I mean, I remember when he, he told me, the professor goes, listen, he said, I'm going to be speaking at the University of Chicago. And he asked more than I wanted to come. And I thought, my God, this is a trap. <laughs> I mean, this is a trap. It's like the Holy Roman Church going to Martin Luther. Uh, listen, we're interested in your ideas. Or uh, Galileo, come by, we're going to have a seminar. You know, and uh, we'd like to hear more about what you're going to talk about. And, uh, but it seems so momentous that Martha and I and Duran, our son, flew to Chicago to hear what he's, what he's going to say. And just like you could never tell what's going to happen with life, this is the bailiwick of Milton Friedman, who is the right, the conservative side of John Maynard Keynes. They were both brilliant men. They both believed in paper money and what it could do. All right? And here was the professor going to give a talk on, on, on Friedman's drought. And we flew there to hear it. And, and, and we're sitting there, and we come, and we're having lunch with you <laughs> that, that morning, and he says, um, Milton Friedman just died. <laughs> wow. All right? And because of his graciousness, he held his tongue. All right? Improvised. You improv yes. <laughs> you improvised a talk. All right? But he was going to sort of talk about Milton Friedman and... And what he thought about him, all right? And, and, and it didn't happen. 
But I said, this is a sign from God, Professor. <laughs> this is a sign from God. It's the finger of God pointing at you. That you were here giving a, going to give a talk on the day that Milton Friedman passed away. Now, Friedman had his time. And he really did. And he had a tremendous influence, for better or worse. Like Keynes, we all, they had, they had their times. And I think that your time is still to come. Well, thank you very much. I also pray that I live long enough. <laughs> you know, Darrell, what you just said dovetails with this carry forward. Yeah. If things are really, if you're really just chronicling the, the, the decline of Roman Empire, why carry forward? Why not just live it up, it's the last day, and there's uh, 2012, and the planet's coming. But if there's hope for the future, you want to carry forward, because yes, Von Mises only realized that he had chronicled the decline, but he was carrying forward. He had made his statement, he put it out there. He, Human actually came out in 1949, and he wrote those words in 1940, mm. all right? So he knew there was meaning in it. He still thought, he still lectured, he still talked, because there's always meaning in the truth. Mm. And, and, and that's what it is, it's sort of faith. And, and you know, and, and that's what you were talking about, Rudy. That's, that's it. Have about. faith, buy gold, buy silver. silver. Right on. <laughs> Any uh, questions or comments from any of today's proceed, Peter? Well, I'm, I'm pretty curious about the quote of um, was Berenke? No, sorry, Alan Greenspan. The quote of Alan Greenspan? You just in your talk quoted Alan Greenspan whereby he said somewhere that fiat has no other place to go but go. Yes, fiat has no other place. In extremis, fiat has no place to go but to gold. Now he said this after he was out of office. You'll find it on the internet. I see, okay. I, I didn't come across that, but I'm okay. very curious if... Uh, well, don't, if Remember back in the 60s, he wrote stuff about gold that was very much understanding the principles behind gold, and then somehow he forgot about it for a few decades, and then he recalled it once he got out of office. <laughs> Selective memory loss. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Suspicious, isn't Suspicious. it? Huh? Suspicious. Circumstantial <laughs> evidence? He also went on record to oppose the United States government selling any gold, because ah. there were some voices around that well, gold is just, or the gold standard is a barbarous relic, so gold is superfluous, get rid of it. And then he thought it was important enough to go on record, he opposed it. And he mentioned specifically that in a war situation, it may be not possible to buy war supplies for anything but gold. And that's his quotation. Well, he knew, and I think he, well, he said, sooner or later the party comes to an end, <laughs> and then it's time to, uh, to buckle down. And now it's getting pretty close to that time. Any, any more questions? Comments? Taking all offers. <laughs> <laughs> no bids. No, no bids. No bids. No bids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that.
Is there anything that you wanted to carry on with? Uh, well, once more, let's celebrate our new graduates. To follow, and we are going to open a roster in the website, right? Uh, having the picture of each uh, graduate, not just honorary, but all of them, with a little write up and mentioning their contribution to the cause of good monetary economics, which is our goal here. So, uh, we, it's I'm right in saying that, am I? That we'll have a roster, we have a... Uh, we'll try to set it up, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm very proud of our present and future graduates, and we make sure that this is not a degree mill. <laughs> I think we better have gold certificates here instead of paper. <laughs> Gold paper paper certificate. But there's a gold seal on it, so there you go. Yeah, the gold seal. That's sure, it. sure, sure. Sure. You notice it's crunched on like the, um, what do you call those guys? Uh, accountants or whoever yeah. does that? No, no counterfeit degrees. We'll make sure of that. <laughs> the real stuff. I think right. we'll, we'll call it a day then. So thanks very much to Professor and Rudy, and we'll see you all tomorrow morning. Thank you. For